0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, folks, today's episode is brought to you by Tell Me About Your Father. It's a new podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. Tune in today and listen to the full first season, seven episodes in total. You're going to hear intimate interviews with a range of fascinating and influential people talking about their dads, the first guy they ever knew, or maybe they didn't know him, or maybe they wish they didn't know him. You know what I'm talking about. The show is created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Matthew Philp, and Elizabeth Thompson, all of whom are writers, all of whom have their own father stories to tell. Tell me about your father. Unpacks all facets of the father The loving, the ambivalent, the supportive The fiscally irresponsible, the obscenely wealthy The dead, the living, the fathers who have built us up And the dads who have let us down The premiere season of Tell Me About Your Father Seven episodes They're waiting for you on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher You can also find all of the episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com And additional content can be found on Instagram At Father. Also, don't forget, there's an anonymous hotline, 1 888 318 DADS. 1 888 318 DADS. You can call it, you can leave a message, you can tell a story about your father, and maybe they'll share it on Instagram, or leave your name and number, and maybe they'll ask you about your father. Tell me about your father. It's a new podcast. Go get it. Season one available right now, all right? Okay. Hey folks, how are you? What's going on? I'm Brad Listy. Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm in Los Angeles, and I have Danielle Trussoni on the program today. She is the author of a novel called The Ancestor, available now from William Morrow. Danielle Trussoni is also the author of the best-selling supernatural thrillers Angelology and Angelopolis. Not only that, she has authored two critically acclaimed memoirs one of which is called Falling Through the Earth and the other is called The Fortress. So Danielle Trussoni and I in conversation momentarily. I have been meaning to have her on the program for a long time and it was worth the wait. We had an excellent conversation. Danielle uh, also served as the 2020 Pulitzer Prize in Fiction uh, jury chair. She chaired the jury for uh, this year's Pulitzer, which went to uh, Colson Whitehead once again, for his novel, The Nickel Boys. Today's episode is brought to you by the Overlook Press, publisher of Starling Days, the new novel by Rowan Hesayo Buchanan. Go get your copy of Starling Days immediately. Today's episode is also brought to you by Rare Bird Books, publisher of the novel The Good Family Fitzgerald by Joseph DePrisco. Go get it, so I don't know if you saw this. I guess it's in the news, but uh Grimes and uh Elon Musk had their baby, and is it a boy? I think it's a boy and they, I wouldn't know though they named the kid x and then it's like that that uh like letter with it's like an a and an E combined, and then a dash twelve x. I can't, you know, like I'm really, uh, you know, I'm really happy for them. I'm happy for anyone who has a baby, who wants to have a baby. It's great. It's an awesome thing. You have a baby. The baby is born. It's wonderful. Congratulations. But what the fuck? I don't understand. Here's what I think bothers me about it. Like, I get that you're an artist. I get that you're edgy and you're Grimes. I get that you're Elon Musk and you're going to Mars. I understand. You're unique people. But, like, enough. You're not the first person in the world to have a baby. It's like you discovered reproduction or something, and you got to make a show of it. You knew this was going to happen. You knew they couldn't just name the kid, like, John. Not that they have to. But XAEA 12? What the f- It's not a fucking robot. What are we doing? But I'm happy for him. It's a beautiful kid. It's just like celebrities always got to name their kid something that no kid has ever been named before, so that the baby is, is somehow seen as super special. All one word, super special, right? So this is an elite baby with an elite baby name. Another thing that's bothering me (laughs) is, uh, like I've been thinking a lot about food. I think I talked about this recently, or I wrote about it in my newsletter, which by the way, if you want to get my email newsletter, you can sign up on my website. Uh, but just like the way that food has become more important as like getting groceries has become more of a dramatic event during this pandemic. Comfort food is like extra comforting. I don't know what it is. Are you feeling this way about food? But like this, this is something that has bothered me going back to way before coronavirus, but I feel like I've, I don't know. I've started to zero in on it uh, more intensely lately with all these foods that are just like lying to you, just lying to you about what they are. Like the granola. Why, like why, why is granola considered healthy? Like I understand it's oats and like there's some raisins, but it's just rolled in sugar. Like just stop. Like what a, what a branding victory for the makers of granola that they've somehow convinced people that granola is not only healthy, but it's like synonymous with the idea of healthy food, right? Granola. Let's roll some oats and sugar. Call it healthy. Let's make some bars and put chocolate and sugar in them, but also add chia seeds. And then, uh, what is it called? A health warrior? Have you eaten these? (laughs) You are a health warrior, if you're eating, uh, these chocolate bars that have seeds in them, it's just such bullshit. Is this really where we are as a society? Anyway, uh, I hope you're, I hope you're well. I'm not, you know, listen, I like, uh, I like to eat some granola. I like, so I'm not trying to say it's, it's not good to eat. It tastes good. It's just not health food. Like don't pretend, don't pretend. Just level with me. I don't I don't want to eat healthy all the time. I like eating garbage. But don't tell me that I'm not eating garbage. It's like you hand somebody a comic book and you're like, "No, this is War and Peace." No, it's not. Just stop. It's it's very hot in my garage. <laughs> Uh, It's like, you know, it's starting to get hot. It's like summertime. It's like in the 90s. And I don't have the air on in here because I don't want there to be a hum in the background. So if I seem uh, agitated, it's because it's about 120 degrees in here. My guest today is Danielle Trussoni. Her new novel is called The Ancestor. It's available now from William Morrow, And, uh, just a great time connecting with her. Danielle and I actually go back. Like we got in touch early in our careers and we're going to discuss it. And now we are, uh, you know, here we are talking at length all these years later. And, uh, she's just had a wonderful career so far and has done a lot of different things. And, uh, just a lot of fun talking with Danielle. Great conversation. And I'm excited to share it with you right now. Here she is folks. This is Danielle Trissoni. And her new novel, once again, is called The Ancestor.
1: So I I began writing, I guess, without really realizing that there were very distinct um, boundaries or genres. And I just wanted to write what I wanted to write. Um, I went to the Iowa Writers' Workshop and I wrote a novel there. That was about the subject that ended up being my first book, which was a memoir, which was my relationship with my father, who was a Vietnam vet, Um, which is called
0: Falling Through the Earth,
1: Falling Through the Earth. Right. Yeah. And um, that it ended up being a memoir um, because the the novel form just didn't quite work for such a story. Um, And, you know, it, it was lauded as very literary, and it sort of um, launched my career as a literary writer. But the thing is, I don't really believe in those genre distinctions. I think that good writing is good writing if it's, you know, no matter where people shelve it or how it's marketed. And, and so my second book um, was a novel called Angel, Angelology which is very historical it's a thriller um there are some supernatural elements in it but it's really very researched and it's very biblical um it's it has more to do with um humanity than you know than angels for example it's it's about the history of of our relationship in some ways with the idea of messengers and angels and that sort of thing um but it's a thriller and so When I wrote that, it was interesting because the reaction to that book after having written Fallen, Falling Through the Earth astonished me. I had um, there was a review of it in Time magazine where the reviewer who writes speculative fiction and writes, you know, kind of out there novels kind of basically accused me of like skipping you know, like leaving the literary genre and like said that I was a fallen angel for writing something that was speculative. Right. And so they had other people had a big problem with it. I didn't have a problem with it and I still don't. I think that, you know, my imagination is going to take me where it does. Um, and, and I bring the same care and the same love of writing to every project, whether it's considered, you know, like the ancestor, the new book that I have coming out, um, Is has been described as gothic literary horror well that's very different than angelology for example which was you know described as literary supernatural historical (laughs) so I think basically what I can say is that I don't I don't fit into any category which is both wonderful but also difficult because if you are a writer like for example Stephen King um, who can be put in one genre and you know you write the same kind of books for 40 years it's easier to sell those books it's easier for people to find you Um, I end up you know the fortress for example i think really through the fans of angelology um because that was so different it was back to this kind of quiet literary memoir um form and so it's hard you know i have to at one you know people want me to pick a lane and and maybe i should um the fact of the matter is I just love to write and whatever inspires me is where I've been going.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's impressive to be able to work in that, that, many different modes and to do well with it. Um, and I also think it's, I think it's, um, I think it's admirable that you are sort of fearless about it and you're not trying I mean, cause you had a lot of success with angelology, like that book sold. Um, you know, there was a big auction for that book. I remember there was a lot of buzz. And like, if I, noticed it, then, you know, certainly it was a a successful book because only a few of them get that much, you know, attention and wind up in the news or whatever. And then, um, I would imagine that sets a certain like market expectation for you on the publisher side. And then, like you said, you have your readers who are sort of expecting something from you, but you seem to be willing to defy those expectations and to sort of stay true to yourself.
1: Yeah, well, let's see if the market lets me do that because, you know, The Fortress didn't sell many copies. It was a literary memoir. And um, you know, when you do that, when you go when you turn away from a best-selling I guess, you know, you can call it a franchise if you want. It's a series and, you know, the film rights were sold and and all of that. And you go and do something more quiet and literary then your track record suddenly changes and people don't know what to do with you. So it's fearless, but maybe it's a little bit unwise. I don't know.
0: That's like, you know that sounds like my neck of the woods.
1: <laughs> fearless and unwise. Well, I was even more fearless and even more unwise when I wrote um, uh, Crypto Z, which is an audio drama that is a kind of companion to the ancestor. And so I wrote 10 episodes of this audio drama and um, I, I'm working with a director... Um, who I basically wrote the episodes and handed it off to him and he cast it and, you know, hired a sound engineer and we've developed this 10 part audio drama that is like nothing else I've ever done. I'm very excited about it. But again, it's not, um, we did it ourselves. It's not like we had Spotify or audible or, or somebody financing that. And, um, we're really just sort of going out into the wild west of audio drama and seeing where it takes us.
0: Like sort of like, like HG uh, Wells kind of that sort of tradition.
1: I guess so. Yeah. It's more, it's a little bit like radio dramas from the forties. Um, you know, I don't know if you heard of homecoming, um, or there are a couple of other audio dramas that, that came out in the past few years. Um, Welcome to Night Vale is one, I think, sure. that did well. Um, but so this is very – it's scripted, but it's performed. And it's performed beautifully. We we had um, voice actors, um, you know, who are vastly talented. We had a sound engineer um, who made – it was amazing. He would make noises from scratch, like sp- – you know, sort of rubbing things together and sampling them and, and it just, it's turned into an audio experience unlike any other audio drama that I've ever heard. Actually, it's just this sort of, um, amniotic experience where you're just surrounded by sound. And, um, I don't know, let's see how people, you know, it's going to be dropping. The first episode is going to be dropping this month. And, um,
0: which is, which is what April?
1: April yeah sorry it's it's actually technically March now but it will be dropping in April and you people can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and you can hear there's a trailer now that you can can watch and I'll send you a link if you want to put that in the show yeah notes. what's it called it's called crypto Z C R Y P T O dash Z
0: and it's related but not exactly so
1: ancestor. I'll tell you the I'll tell you how that happened so the ancestor has a uh, do you know what the what cryptozoology is
0: No, tell me. Okay,
1: so cryptozoology is a study, um, it's a scientific field. Um, Some people would say it's a kind of, you know, hoaxy scientific field, but um, one that studies creatures that have been reported but not proven to exist. So, for example, the Loch Ness Monster or the Yeti, Or mermaids or werewolves. Those are all considered crypto, cryptids, cryptozoological creatures. And there's actually a museum, a cryptozoology museum in Maine. And there's a lot of, um, organizations, you know, up in, in the Northwest that are very seriously into cryptozoology. So, there in the novel in the ancestor which i wrote first um there is an element of that i mean in it, what makes it kind of a horror novel is there is a creature that we discover um is there in in the book in the in the alps and um i did a lot of research around that creature like studying evolutionary theory and genetics and how it could possibly be real and i may, you know the the one thing that i do like to do in all of my fiction is that it may have speculative or supernatural elements or weird elements, but it's very researched and it feels real when you're reading it, right? Like there's nothing that just happens without there being an explanation scientifically. Um, So I did so much research that the book ended up being like 475 pages long. And we took my editor just shaved out about 100 pages of that stuff. And so I use that material as the background to create the audio drama. So the audio drama really has different, it has different characters and different scenarios, scenarios. It's about two cryptozoologists who are in the Alps looking for what are called the Icemen, which is a tribe of pre-human hominids that have survived in a crevice in in the Alps.
0: Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, so let me ask you something, because I mean, I think you answered one question that sprang to mind, which is like, how do you even conceive of, you know, these creatures that live in your book or, you know, and like, where does it come from? And I think it comes from you reading about like cryptozoology and evolutionary biology, like doing all that research. But then where where do you, in the aftermath of doing all that reading and research, fall on things like the Loch Ness Monster or the Yeti? Like, do you have – like, I'm very skeptical, but that's just like my default mode. Like, did you learn things that make you feel like it's possible, like really possible that there's a Yeti walking around out there?
1: Well, you know, I learned that it is genetically and evolutionarily possible, right? All of that's possible, whether it actually – exist, whether they're actually here, I don't know. I mean, I I would think that we would have found them. (laughs) Some people say that we have. But if if you really look at evolutionary theory, like what could happen, of course, it's possible. You know, there were six um, types of humans um, or hominids around 100,000 years ago, and Homo sapiens were the ones that survived. It's not out of the realm of imagination that other groups, if the circumstances had been correct, would also survive. It doesn't mean that they're eight feet tall and scary and hairy, right? They could (laughs) just be a different kind of human. Um, But anyway, yeah, I think that it's possible. I think that so much more is possible than what we often allow ourselves to believe, which is, you know, I guess the boundary that I like to push in my fiction, like where, what do we believe and why? And 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 how is that interesting narratively? How does that keep us? How does it keep people reading to be asking those questions?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that's like I guess that would be like uh, another question to ask because your books are page turners, um, and you have mastered that. Like you have a really uh, great gift for uh, pacing and plotting and um, keeping things moving. And I'm wondering if you because there's such like a large degree of imaginative work that goes into your novels um more so than maybe say like auto fiction you know what i'm saying like where you're working Mm -hmm. where you're working like you know from the stuff of your life more directly um are you it sounds like you're doing research but are you outlining like can you talk a little bit about how you build the world
1: so it's changed over time um with angelology it was just tons of research and no direction right I would just do research and write and do research and write and I remember I wrote I think 125 pages and then threw them away and then started over and rewrote and you know it was really just a process of of learning um and you know over the course of writing this is my third novel and you know these these novels I've come to a system where I try to not waste so much time, you know, and, and I don't, I didn't outline the ancestor, but I have to say my next book, I will try to outline. Um, I think that there's real value in it. Um, and I think that it also, because I am obsessed, really obsessed with creating questions that keep people reading. I don't really think of it so much as like plotting. I, I know some people do, but I think of it as questions when I get to the end of a chapter, I want to know, I want a question that I want to answer. I want, whether if it's about a character, what's, what is this character going to do? Or what is this character feeling? Or if it's about something that is happening action wise, you know, what's the next step that this, that's going to happen in the story. It doesn't matter to me. I just want to feel that there are more questions and that it's not stagnating. So because that's so important to me, I think that I will start outlining um, with the next book that I write. But that said, I'll probably throw the outline away and, and, revise it as I go, because one of the mad, you know, I found that some of the most magical moments for me as a writer is when I think I'm going to do one thing and then it totally surprises me. Um, A character will just sort of reveal a new path or, um, you know, a situation will bust open and show me all of these different incredible little wormholes that we can go into and you know if i lose that i think i'm going to lose what makes me me as a writer so you know i will outline probably but i don't think i'm going to stick with it (laughs) totally
0: so you're from wisconsin i am so am i i was born in milwaukee i don't know if you knew
1: that. no i didn't know that yeah um i actually am so sad because i was going back to milwaukee in april um and i was going to spend time in wisconsin but i can't go now
0: Uh Yeah, it's, I was there. Uh, I was there in the fall, and uh, it's beautiful.
1: Yeah, I I miss it sometimes.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you grew up, and you detailed this in um, "Falling Through the Earth." But your father was a Vietnam vet, and you were uh, he raised you? Is that the way that it worked?
1: So my parents. I lived with both of my parents until they got were divorced, and then there was a period when I was about twelve that. I moved in with my dad. So, the book, the memoir, really weaves um, that period of me living with my dad um, and his war stories, and then my own tri- trip to Vietnam when I was in my 20s um, to go to the places that he um, had been. And, um, and, for people and he was listening. a tunnel rat, right? Yeah, I was, was a- going to
0: say, I was going to say, you should describe his service in Vietnam because it was particularly difficult.
1: Right. He, so he was a little guy, you know, five, seven, very skinny and wiry. And um, he was assigned to be a tunnel rat, which, for those of you who don't know what that is, in um, Vietnam, you know, starting in the 50s when the Vietnamese were fighting with the French, they started building whole cities underground with hospitals and like cooking chambers and sleeping chambers. And they had an extensive network of tunnels by the time the Americans came. And um, they used those tunnels to fight uh, us, right? And and for, you know, that is in a large part why they won. Um, they were able to resist for a very long time while we bombed the shit out of the surface of their country, but they we couldn't get underneath. So um, anyway, my father went into those tunnels, and as you can imagine, they were horrific. Um, people were, you know, most of the men who went down into the tunnels were killed or severely wounded. And my dad came home. Um, this is before I was born, but he came home very messed up. Um, and when I was growing up, that's still, you know, that was really a part of my, of my childhood is, is grappling with what had damaged my father and ultimately my whole family. Um, so profoundly.
0: Yeah. I mean, cause you're just a little kid and, um, growing up in the seventies, like did you know? I mean, I guess it was more of like an intuitive thing when you're a really young child, like, you know, dad isn't feeling well. And I think, too, like I think our um, as a society, our understanding of things like PTSD, you know, back then was in its infancy. I don't think there was any kind of treatment or diagnosis for that unless I'm missing something.
1: Yeah, no, there wasn't at all. And also there was a a kind of um, shame, you know, that that men especially felt about talking about mental Health problems, and so um, no, I didn't really know. Uh, I think it was a shadow. It was a shadow over my life that I couldn't really understand. And um, even when I was, you know, twelve and living with him, and he was drink. You know, the large part of the book is about his alcoholism, and 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 he would take me with him to the bars. And you know, the bars in Wisconsin are very particular. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that was kind of how I grew up. And I think it wasn't until I was older and got away from, you know, my family that I was able to start putting that in perspective and really understood what was happening.
0: Well, I was back. One of the things I noticed when I was back in Wisconsin is just how boozy that state is.
1: Oh, so boozy. It's really one of the defining, um, elements of Wisconsin is how much people drink.
0: It's incredible. Incredible. And I, I remember too, like, um, you know, is you are talking about going to the bar with your dad? Where, you know, he was there most nights, right? It was like his his pub.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's where his friends were. That was his community. Um, I mean, the fact that he needed to drink um, to feel, you know, just normal um, is a part of that. But, um, you know, aside from the alcohol, it was really there, there aren't a lot of spaces for people to have a community like that. And, um, he, you know, he, he was somebody, you know, it sounds a little bit like cheers, but he was somebody there, right? Like that's where everybody knew him and, and he was, he had a reputation there and, um, he felt comfortable there, you know, and me too. I mean, I was a 12 year old playing dice, you know, on the bar and eating chips and drinking, um, you know, Shirley temples. And
0: I thought you were going to say beer, but (laughs) yeah,
1: not at 12. Um, but you know, I was really good at, I was, I played pool at 12 and I was pretty good at it. Like that's just the culture that, um, that I grew up in.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and, uh, it reminds me of my next door neighbors growing up. They used to, God, I want to say they ate dinner almost every night at this, like, dark pub on, I guess, Main Street, or it wasn't called Main Street, but it might as well have been, in our little, you know, Milwaukee suburb. And it was, like, not the healthiest food. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I think, yeah. I no, think back on, Yeah, they just, like, fried food, like fried fish, French fries, and, you know, like six beers, and that was just... Well, ne- living
1: in L.A., as you do, where the food is, you know, so incredible, yeah, um, and people are really conscious of what they're doing to their bodies it changes your point of view when you go back i'm sure i mean i go i haven't been there for a long time but you know when i have gone back it's almost like you know a state of physical shock (laughs) trying to eat what people eat (laughs) right right. and it's like oh my god i can't how do you guys survive eating this
0: (laughs) it's like and it's like actually no problem you know it doesn't seem to be anyway at least not until you get older and it makes me wonder because like i go back and forth like i'm um, you know, I'm very LA. Like I was LA before I even got to LA. Like I went, <laughs> I, I went to Boulder for college and that's, I think where it started for me. Right. But
1: grooming, grooming for LA.
0: Just like, yeah. Just like, at least, uh, I thought you meant like, like actual physical grooming. I was like, I was not well groomed in Boulder, but oh, was... <laughs> no,
1: <laughs> no, I mean like, you know, it's like finishing school almost yeah, for yeah, yeah. before you go off to LA.
0: Right. Right. So, but I, sometimes I'm like, you know, I'm really glad that, I'm careful about what I eat and I like living in a place where you have access to, you know, I'm a vegetarian, so it's like nice to be able to go out easily and find vegetarian food, these kinds of things. But I can also be persuaded sometimes, or I have like some degree of sensitivity to this idea that like, you know, there is a point at which that kind of like, quote unquote, self-care becomes just like either an eating disorder or like a form of narcissism, (laughs) You know what i'm saying like I, yeah. like I don't want to get to that point i think right. you, you want to be like conscious and like you know you want to be healthy but you can't go so crazy that like it becomes a you know unhealthy in some a
1: limitation yeah. right like i guess i would like to be if someone i i'm very self-aware of what i eat and i'm you know pretty I'm, i sound a lot i'm like you like i I'm, i take care of my body and i'm i try to eat well but you know, if I'm with a group of people and I'm invited to do to eat food that I wouldn't normally eat, I'm not going to limit myself and say no. That's, I of... guess, that's how I think of it. Like I'll, I'll culturally shift. Like I'll shift over and do what they're doing, to be a part of that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I was back in Wisconsin, it was, it was. I think I might have talked about this. I don't know if I talked about it on the show, but I, it was kind of an unusual circumstance. Um, I was staying with a friend, and I, I actually don't know him super well um and i was staying at his mom's house (laughs) and i I, it was like blizzarding i was like the last flight to touch down at at milwaukee airport like it was like incredible crosswinds like a really sketchy landing on like a sheet of ice (laughs) and i get there and uh i get a car to drive me to her house i just have the address And it's literally like whiteout blizzard. Like I'm in the back of this car and then like she lives in this house that's like set way back off the road. You can't even see it from the road and especially not in a a snowstorm. Um, And so I go there. It turns out she's not there. She's at her daughter's house who lives like up the road in a similarly like setback situation. (laughs) So I show up. sounds
1: like a good creepy novel. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah. And I show up at this house and I'm like, I think this is it. Like, I hope this is it. And I've never met these people before in my life. And I show up and they're like, they of course have dinner waiting for me. And it's oh. like, it's like blood sushi. sausage and oh. steak, and like venison. <laughs> yep. And I am not about to be like, Hey guys, by the way, I just flew in from LA and I'm vegan. Yeah. You know, I right?
1: need sushi, please. Yeah. I, you know,
0: I was just like, and I just went with it. I didn't know what to do. And I just went with it. I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm not going to say anything. And I ate it. And it was fine, you know. Like it I, seems
1: very sane, right? It seems like a sane way to live, like valuing human relationships um, enough to <laughs> to be flexible. And to like
0: have people like who I've never met like be preparing me a meal, and it's like blizzarding, and they're putting me right. up. For, I'm like, you know what? You just can't be that guy. No, you know? yeah. So anyway, um, so you grow. You're growing up. You uh, are in this household where you know. That, you know, not all is well with your father, but you don't know exactly how to define it. Um, and in the in the memoir, you kind of detail like some wayward, I guess like semi-normal wayward um, activities of youth. Like you sort of were dropping acid and...
1: Um... I did that for a little while. It was very, very like small blip of my life. You know, like I think it's pretty, you know, most people... 15 16 17 start experimenting a little bit and but I quickly got over it when I started To realize that I wanted to be a writer, you know, oh. that's actually the thing that pulled me out of so many things um, You know I when I was 17 uh, I knew I wanted by the time I was 17. I knew I wanted to be a writer. How? And like, was,
0: how did that happen?
1: You know, I It's hard to pinpoint it. I think part of it might have been um I went, (laughs) I can't say exactly if this is it, but I I went on a school trip to France and I sort of, I didn't like to be with the, the group, right? So I would wander around Paris. I wandered around Paris by myself and I ended up at Shakespeare and Company, the bookstore, and I started going through some of the books and I bought just a handful of them and I started reading them and I just really fell in love with what i found i think and it was you know colette in translation um henry miller which is an odd thing for me it's very different than the kind of books i write um but it was really you know well like sort tropic of, tropic, of, my,
0: tropic of cancer or whatever tropic
1: of cancer but also his his letters with Isnen, uh-huh. um, which i love and um were really formative for me and uh i can't remember what the other books were, but I just started reading. I started reading American writers who had been in Paris and it opened my eyes to the, to the larger world. I mean, something that, you know, to get back to my fiction, um, I started sort of analyzing, you know, why my fiction is different than my nonfiction, right? My memoir is about my dad and you know, my first memoir, my second memoir was about my marriage. But what I do in my fiction that I don't do in my memoir is I go places, right. All of those books are set kind of internationally are in multiple locations. And it's all about one character sort of exploding a small view of the world and making, you know, sort of a larger picture opening up like the ancestor, which is the new book is about a woman who takes a DNA test. Um, You know, just like a two, three in me kind of ancestral uh, ancestry um, test. And, through that process discovers that she's related to a family in the Alps that she had no idea that existed. And she goes there and gets trapped in um, the ancestral estate, which is a castle tucked away in the middle of nowhere in the Alps. And um, eventually, I mean, don't want to give too much away here, but realizes that her family is um, not exactly human. So in, you know, those steps, right, it's about a normal person living in the normal world. And then suddenly something happens that expands her world a little bit bigger and then a little bit bigger. And then it just explodes. And that's always interested me, interested me a lot, like the idea of the American mind or my mind being opened in ways that I couldn't imagine.
0: Well, and I think travel does that, it, like maybe better than just about anything. Like I totally relate to, especially when you're young and you're abroad for the first time or you know, mm-hmm. you should, like just the and to be alone, too. I totally relate to that impulse to want to like break away from the tour group and just go be sort of solitary in this strange place where. I don't know if you spoke the language but um
1: no not at all
0: yeah i mean there's something there's something great about that i don't know i don't know what it is but i've always like joked that like disorientation is one of my favorite ways to feel like i love being someplace where i don't know where i am quite or i can't understand fully you know what people are saying around me um but i don't know i i've i, I relate to that and have had that experience where you know you go away not even for that long of a period of time and you're outside of your normal element and you just feel like you've learned um, at an accelerated rate. Like you come back feeling larger somehow.
1: Yeah, or everything suddenly is so much smaller. I, I knew that, you know, when I went back to the town in Wisconsin that I'm from. You know, it just wasn't gonna. It wasn't gonna cut it for me. Well,
0: <laughs> what anymore. town was it? Was it Lacrosse? Uh,
1: Lacrosse. Yeah. Where, where is that um, on
0: the western side of Wisconsin? It's on
1: the west. It's on the Mississippi River. Oh, it's, it is. Okay. Um, exactly on the highway between milwaukee and minneapolis actually ah. so um yeah it's and it's right on the mississippi river but you know and i you know very quickly as soon as i could ended up leaving um wisconsin and you know i lived in japan for a few years and then in france um, okay
0: so wait wait like how did you get to japan
1: i taught english in high school there
0: so where did you Did you go to college undergrad
1: Yes, I went to college. My undergrad was at the University of Wisconsin, Madison. Okay, right. Um, And then, when I graduated, I got a job teaching in Japan and went for three years and lived in Japan.
0: Where in Japan?
1: Um, This on the southernmost island. um, There's a a a city called Fukuoka, and uh, I was there and loved it. Like it was mind-blowing amazing and you know talk about disori being disorientated all the time um do
0: you speak japanese
1: i spoke a little bit then um i don't speak it now um i did speak enough then to to live and you know go to the bank and take the bus and i could read enough um japanese to get on a train and that sort of thing um but i was living outside of that city in a tiny little town where outside of my apartment was just rice paddies and mountains and um I was the only white person in that village and people were literally like staring at me when I walked outside because it was just so weird like what is this western woman doing here and of course I dressed the way that I dress and you know which is different than japanese people the way that japanese people dress and um. So anyway, yeah. And then I lived in France for a while and um, Bulgaria. Wait. I lived all over. So,
0: But France was – this was post – I'm just trying to track the timeline. You didn't go from Japan to France, did you?
1: No, I went from – Japan, I went to Iowa City uh, to for the Iowa Writers' Workshop. So, and I lived there for two years.
0: So when you were in Japan, you were working on fiction?
1: I was just starting to write. I wrote the pages that got me into Iowa.
0: Which were the novel that became the yeah, it memoir? Was,
1: yeah, it was the novel about my dad that ended up becoming a memoir.
0: Got it. Okay. So... And for those of
1: the, you writers out there who are feeling at all frustrated, um, about drafts and rewriting things. So the novel, that novel that I read at Iowa, um, it won, you know, a literary prize before it was published. And then it went out with an agent to 25 publishers and reject was rejected by all of them. Hmm. And so I, that's why I went away. I threw it away basically and wrote a memoir. Um, but, you know taking that work you know i didn't like get so upset that i stopped writing right like i i was very upset but i put it aside and and found another form for it so that it could go forward
0: do you have in, with the benefit of hindsight any like in, like was it just kind of like a fluke of publishing do you still feel like that novel was good enough to to be to be in print no but...
1: well it's interesting because a, an agent who saw it um who didn't represent it later told me that it was one of It was just one of the weirdest but um, most brilliant things that passed over her desk, but she just couldn't take it because she knew it wouldn't sell. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, I think that that's true. It was just wacky, right? It was just a weird novel. I tried to introduce supernatural elements into a Vietnam story. <laughs> and You know, it was like me, all of my weird, you know, maybe that actually, now that we're getting here, maybe that's where things bifurcated, right? Like the the sort of literary realism that I do with memoir and then the supernatural and, and sort of out there stuff that I do with my fiction. I tried to do both of those in that first novel. So I guess they were all, always there.
0: Right. Like that impulse.
1: I'm learning things about myself as <laughs> i'm talking to you Brad. <laughs> that's, but, what I, yeah. oh,
0: that's what i'm trying to do here uh so i want to talk about iowa because um you know i've had a lot of people on the show who went there and what's interesting to me is that i've kind of heard it all at this point like there are people who loved it there are people who like loudly did not love it there are people who quietly just sort of like were miserable other people thought it was okay you know like i've kind of it's run the gamut so I'm curious where you fall on that. Like how was your experience there in in that MFA program?
1: I think all of those things that you just said, (laughs) I experienced all of them sequentially. Um, I was thrilled to have gotten in. Um, It was life-changing for me. It gave me two years to do nothing but write. And, you know, where else in the world are you going to get that? I, You know, I also was there on a scholarship um, and – that made a world of difference for me. I wouldn't have been able to to go if if they hadn't given me a scholarship. So um, in that sense, it was phenomenal. Um, and also the quality of the students that I worked with, you know, my workshops were amazing. I mean, everybody was a good writer. Um, but I was very new at writing. Like the pages that got me in were really the first kind of pages I had started that I was working on. You know, it, it really was the very beginning of my career. And I feel, you know, incredibly lucky, like something happened. I don't know what happened that I got in. Um, but that said, it was very difficult to be there. Um, there was a lot of competition. There was a lot of stuff that happened then that isn't happening now in terms of financial aid, like they would give people financial aid for one year, and then you'd have to sort of audition for financial aid for the second year year. And they would post the results publicly, like from one to 25, like who got the best to the worst. Oh my God. Yeah. No, it was really not a good system. Um, they don't do that anymore. That went away. Um, so how did you do? <laughs> I always, so I, I, as I mentioned, I had a scholarship for my tuition. So this was about financial aid, meaning teaching. Like if you could teach, then you'd make more money. I always did "Right, I was never the best and I was never the worst. I was right in the middle," that's which good. was fine.
0: Yeah, that's a good place to be.
1: Yeah, it was good because I didn't lose that many friends. <laughs> you, <laughs> you can know, relate. Can... You
0: can relate either way.
1: Right, right. I would just sort of held the course, but um, you know, it was it was tumultuous for everybody. I um I had a different experience there. I had a, a baby. Um I was one of the only people that came to the program with a ba- with a child. Um, wait, and
0: wait, you, wait, you, you, where did you have the baby? You, you I got... had the
1: baby in Japan.
0: <laughs> you did?
1: Yes. I was, I, I was married and, um, in Japan and, and had a baby in Japan.
0: And this is married to, uh, Nikolai, the husband about whom the fortress is written?
1: No. So I was married once before Nikolai too.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. So, you're... so I
1: was, I've been, I've been married twice. Got it. I was married twice. And, um, but I can get into it. I mean, this is probably more than I was going to talk about here. But that marriage, um, that was someone I was dating and he came with me to Japan and it just sort of became that. Um, And we split up, you know, soon after my son was born. But so anyway, I came to uh, Iowa with a newborn. So I had a very different experience in that while other people were kind of going out and partying, I was really working. Right. I was like home with my my son. He went to daycare during the day and then so I could work on my book then. And then at night I was home. So I didn't have the same sort of experience. But I have to say that anyone who gets into Iowa, go definitely. um, It is life changing. And, uh, you know, it it gives you not only the kind of patina that you might need to get an agent, Um, Or to get some stories published in in journals or magazines, but it gives you, um, you know, it, it gives you the confidence to keep going after you're rejected, right? Like, the rejection that we take as writers is immense and ongoing. And, you know, you need a lot of, you need to be able to weather that.
0: Yeah. So let I mean so you talked about the, the novel version of Falling Through the Earth and how it didn't sell. It went out to twenty five publishers and they all passed. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then you scrapped it and you said, I'm gonna write or not entirely scrapped it, but you said I'm gonna I'm gonna write this as straight memoir uh instead.
1: Right. right. Well what happened is I took so a lot of it was based on reality, right? So so I didn't actually take the pieces of the novel and reuse them, but I I rethought those pieces. And rewrote them. But I wrote a proposal. I didn't write the whole memoir. I wrote a proposal, I think thirty-five or forty pages, and it sold immediately. Right? It sold immediately. So I could tell that there was something about the form that changed the situation. As a memoir, um, publishers were willing to publish it. As a novel, and you know, with all the other stuff I had going on in there, they weren't.
0: Yeah, I mean I guess it makes me cuz i i remember the period that you're talking about maybe that was a particularly hot period for memoir do you know what i'm saying like i don't yeah, know yeah that... i
1: think it was i think it was and i i wouldn't have known to even do that but i was uh, someone who i knew from iowa had just published a really successful memoir um jarhead by anthony swafford oh yeah i read that yeah so he had just we were in workshop together and i saw him publish this memoir and i was like well maybe since i have this story, you know, that's, um, you know, really a very unique and interesting story. It would work as a memoir. And so that's, you know, that's what I, what I did, but I wouldn't have known to do that if I hadn't been paying attention and seeing what was happening out in the world.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've thought about this before. Um, I've been thinking about it lately. I'm kind of working on something that could go either way. And it's like, I think maybe when it's a memoir, especially if it's dealing with darker, Themes and stuff that if there's a real person attached to it, um, it's a it's an actual recollection of a life as opposed to a fictionalization, and yeah. that maybe it's easier to package that to the reader. Do you know what I'm saying? I,
1: I think I think with something like that, at least in the case of my story, <laughs> it was absolutely necessary because the darkness of my childhood. Um, may it might have seemed gratuitous in a novel right it might it might not have been actually one of the letters from one of the editors that rejected the novel said it's not believable right and the stuff that wasn't believable often was the darker stuff and because in a novel you have to justify that darkness somehow everything has to be explained away but in reality in life Darkness just is darkness, right? We say, all have that.
0: <laughs> shit, just, shit just happens. like Shit just happens, a, right? Out of the
1: right. Yeah. And you don't have to give this large psychological structure to it to make it happen. Um, and so I think there's an elegance to that. And I think formally um, there's a kind of pleasure for readers to not have to be grappling with the why. Why, why did that happen to you? Or why did that happen to this character?
0: Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, the book sells right away uh, and then goes on to be like, what, one of the 10 best books of the year. The New York Times picked it, right?
1: Yeah, it was. It Yes, it was. It was, um, it was on the cover of the book review. And yeah, it did very well, um, which was so surprising to me. <laughs> I was like, whoa, what happened here? Um, so yeah. And then I went away and wrote something totally different.
0: Okay, so I want to ask you about Cause like what we just touched on has something to do with marketing and, um, those kinds of considerations, like the businessy side of publishing. Um, and I suspect you're going to say, no, you were just kind of following your bliss and like writing what was, you know, inspiring to you and interesting to you or or whatever. But like, as you, with a young child, you know, like going through graduate school, getting your MFA with a baby at home. I mean, mean it, it happens, but it's, I think it's the exception rather than the rule Um, And I think the way that you were describing it, it surely seems like it focused your energies.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, it had to because it was, you know, live or die. Right. (laughs) Right.
0: Right. Right. So when you finish the memoir and then you turn your attention to fiction and you're writing angelology, um, are you looking around at the book market and saying, like, well, this is what sells like, wow. Like, Dan Brown sure is making a mint writing about like religious, uh, like religion inspired thrillers and things like that. Like, was that any part of your calculation, or is it something? It's so that j-
1: funny because the book was often compared to Dan Brown, and I had never read Dan Brown, and I I really was not influenced by him. But that said, I was, for example, um, I knew a writer named Elizabeth Coastaba who wrote The Historian. I don't know if you remember that book. Sure. Um, yeah. So. That book came out right before I think I started writing Angelology, and I knew her because her husband is Bulgarian, and she's in my second husband, who The Fortress is about, is Bulgarian, Um, and you know I went to. She has a foundation in Suzopol in Bulgaria, and I went there for the summer and. I also – so I saw – in that sense, I did see that, you know, big books happen um, when you use certain – um so, sort of play with certain genres. Um, I did see that. At the same time, my influences, I felt, were sort of not very commercial, you know, if you think about it. Because I was writing about um, a nun, right? Like the main character of Angelology is – a not like a twenty three year old nun. And a lot of the characters are these old Franciscan nuns in a convent. And you know But but a twenty twenty
0: well, three year old nun's kind of cool, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, now now I think so too. But at the time I was like, oh my God, who's gonna want to read about that? Um so anyway, I didn't it was part of it because of course I wanted the book to sell. I thought, okay, if I you know, but my um sort of threshold for what was success was so, I don't want to say so low, but it was lower. um, I think then, you know, when people say, oh, you must have been looking at Dan Brown or whatever, like, uh, you, you know, it was it was not at that level that I was thinking about success. I was thinking success for me was being able to write the next book, right? Like selling a book, having enough to write another book, selling enough copies to write another book. And, you know, that has always been what I want to do I mean of course who doesn't want to have a book on the bestseller list Um, it's it was a thrill and it was it's um, it was life changing but if that were all that I was aiming for I would have stopped writing after Angelology right and it's not I love I love writing I need to write every day I have a kind of meditative practice of writing and um, wait what does that mean (laughs) It means if I don't write, if I'm not at my desk writing, I start to feel a little bit antsy if I miss it, right? If I miss a day or two of writing. So, you know, it's a whole ritual. I don't know if you have this, but, you know, I have my desk and I have these things I do at my desk and I have, um, what do you do? Well, I have, um, a little platform by my desk that I have candles and I have, things on it. I guess it's a little bit like an altar. And I like those. And I arrange certain things on my desk. I have a collection of glass um, paperweights. And um, I have, it's not so much a journal, but it's like an agenda, like a calendar that I write things down in what like sort of my daily goals about what I'm going to be working on or researching. Um, So I just have a sort of a, a ritual of ordering my thoughts around writing um and then of course, I sit down and write for a few hours and and it i I really believe that going into the trance of writing or going into whatever creative space that is that I go into when I write gives me um uh the the structure and um i don 't know the peace of mind to get through the rest of the day.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I hear that a lot. I feel that too. Like where you, you just feel better when you've done your work for the day. It's like, right. and uh, I think, you know, I don't, I don't have an altar. I'm now thinking like, shit, I got to get some candles. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I have a whole bunch of things on this altar. I can send you a picture if yeah. you
0: want. <laughs> I mean, I'm not quite there yet, but I do have certain rituals and i like like if i'm working on something i'll sometimes get like a single playlist that i feel like somehow captures the oh the, yeah the, that's mood, great. the mood of it or you know those kinds of things um but do you like the the ritual that you're describing does it unfold at the same time every day like are you a morning person or
1: i am a morning person so it and it does unfold at the same time so by eight o'clock i'm at my desk
0: damn every day every day what are your kids doing? Do they just know like leave mommy alone.
1: <laughs> yep. They they just there's no other alternative. So, um, you know, they're generally gone at school or whatever by then. And um yeah, that's just the way that I've structured our life. Like they wouldn't question are we eating dinner or not, right? So they don't question that I'm working. Um and and they respect that. I think it's great actually. They what, know that my office is kind of my sacred space.
0: And what about uh, what about how long it takes you? I think like now at this point in your career, you probably have a little bit more wiggle room. It's not quite as urgent as maybe it was when Falling Through the Earth was out in the world, you know, and you were trying to get to the next one. Um,
1: I don't know. It feels pretty urgent. I feel like the publishing industry is collapsing, to be honest. You do. <laughs> if, if I just want to, you know, throw that out there. I don't know. <laughs> I, I feel like. It's harder for writers, you know. I'm on the Authors Guild Council, and so I hear about all of the struggle that people, you know, with pirating and with digital copies being given away, and you know, advances falling in you know huge percent in the past decade. You know, people are writers are really struggling, um, and you know, me too. Not struggling, but you know, I'm I'm having I'm I'm grappling with. The change in our industry um i've started i'm actually writing you know i wrote this audio drama but i'm also writing um a pilot for television and i'm working with someone to develop angelology as a as a show as a series and i'm doing other things that i wouldn't have had to do or that i wouldn't have wanted to do or felt compelled to do after writing falling through the earth
0: right right i mean you know it's like you're a hustler though that's good and i think that uh it's interesting to hear you say that and maybe um, like a little sobering too, but good to hear because I think from the outside looking in, somebody would look at Daniel Trasoni and say, wow, like she did it. You know, she's like angelology. There is a bidding war and it was sold all over the world. And yes, it did. And I'm sure you did fine um, with the book. You did well with the book. but. It's not the end of the road, you know, (laughs) like
1: it's not the end of the road. And it's also it seems like a lot of money, you know, when there is an auction. But you have to remember that about half of that goes away instantly with two agents and taxes and everything else. And then you divide the rest between, you know, took four and a half years to write Angelology. And I'll just tell you, when I sold Angelology, I was one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars in credit card debt. Because I had taken out five – this is back when you could do that. I took out five credit cards and I said, I am quitting my teaching job and I'm going to live on credit cards till I can finish this book. So, um, you know, then of course I had – the advance paid for my living expenses for the previous years, which was on credit. So, I mean – yeah, but, by the way, like can I lot, can I just can but... I just
0: interject real quick? I, right when you were saying that, where you were sort of making this bet on yourself, I was imagining you as like a teenager playing dice on the bar in Lacrosse.
1: <laughs> That's where I learned it. <laughs> that is exactly where I learned it. That no, is ballsy. I, I know I would never do it again, but I, at that point in my life, I had um, I felt like I didn't have an option. I don't know if that makes sense. It's sure. like this is the moment, um, and uh, I didn't have help from other people. You know, so many people who become writers have you know, family money or, um, they have a network of people who connect, you know, give them a good job, an easy job that they could write on the side. I just didn't have any of that. So I made a decision to, to really, yeah, to, to bet on myself and, and it worked out luckily, but I, Right now, I'm not in a position where I could do that again.
0: Well, and but I mean, it sounds like you do have like a, a deep belief in your abilities. Like, I guess you have to have that if you're going to try to make a go of this. But that's definitely... Right. If you're going
1: to be delusional, you have to be 100% delusional. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you can't like go halfway. You have to, you're either in or you're out.
0: That's right. But I think... But you know what? I think that... Um, I mean, I I think about myself, I'm like, maybe I haven't been delusional enough, like I need to get and I but I mean that like, like as a a criticism of myself, like you do have to be all in. Um, And I don't know if that necessarily means like incurring a bunch of credit card debt. But it does mean writing every day or close to it. It does mean reading in a concentrated and strategic might not be the right word, but you know what I mean? Like being an active, like an active reader where you're really, um, attacking that as part of your job and part of your work life, as opposed to just like in, you know, something of pure pleasure. Um, so kudos to you, you know, and, and for like running that gauntlet and making it because, you know, it's not easy. And I Like you're talented and hardworking and you have your shit together and, you know, are able to get the books done. Um, Can you talk about luck? I, I ask this because I wonder about it. You know, like, are there people out there who might have been in a similar situation and made a similar bet on themselves who wrote? a good novel, but like, for some reason, like it just didn't find a home or didn't have the right agent or the timing, the market timing was bad. Do you know what I'm saying? Like,
1: of course. Yeah, it's totally a part of it. Um, I'll just tell you that, uh, I got very lucky in one in many ways, but there was, there's one measurable point where I see my career changing because of luck. And that was, um, When Falling Through the Earth came to the New York Times book review office as a galley. um, I later learned that the deputy editor um, who ended up championing the book for me in really pushing the book um, while he worked there was late for his train and forgot something in his office but had my galley in his bag and took it out and he said he read it on the train or read part of it on the train and knew by the time he got home that he he was going to support that book. And so that's a moment that I know now was just luck, right? Wow. If that if that galley had not landed on his desk and he didn't bring it back back home with him that night or you know if a different editor had read it who didn't have the same you know sort of taste or or um aesthetic criteria for memoir you know my career wouldn't have gone in the direction that it did go in so I think there is an element of luck but that said there's also an element of making luck um you know I was relentlessly careful about making sure that things like timing and agents and um and you know I guess in some respects uh quality were all there right like I I didn't some writers that I know, many writers that I know, sort of take their hands off the wheel and just go away and write what they write and then send it out to their agent and they never think about it. But there's a whole other element to having a successful career than just writing a good book.
0: Can you, and... t- can you talk more about this, like like this part of it where you're you know, assessing the marketplace and like seeing what's been going on and and seeing what the market timing might be when you're going to go out on submission with something and then selecting an agent and, you know, working in maybe a more direct way than some writers do with the agent on things like submission strategy and those kinds of things.
1: Well, it's hard now because I'm doing, I haven't done that so much. I guess I should be doing it more, but I can say that when, um, So I had an agent for Falling Through the Earth that I'm not going to say any names or anything, but, you know, that agent kind of checked out um, at crucial moments during the publication process. And after Falling Through the Earth was a big success, then, you know, that agent showed up a lot, (laughs) you know. And um, I ended up leaving that agent um, for an agent that I, I was betting would be able to elevate my career to a new level, and that was a calculated move.
0: What, what's the agent that is? Are you still with this agent?
1: So that's Eric Simonoff at WME. Uh huh. Um, he was at Jane and Nesbit then, and and you know recently I've actually uh, left WME too, and that's largely because it was a behemoth. It's a huge organization, and it was just I found that I was getting lost. So I guess that's another st- strategic move, right? I decided that in the current climate and in my career, which is one that I need more attention and, and also I'm branching out into television, um, I want a, a small kind of dedicated boutique agency that has um, real client relationships and is willing to go out and, um, you know, sort of hustle as much as I am. Right. Right. So, so I, I left WME. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm still doing that. I, and I was assessing the situation. I mean, the world is is crazy right now for, for writers. So many, you know, people who are self-publishing are making a lot more money than some, than a lot of traditionally published writers. And there's a lot going on in the industry that, uh, is undermining our ability to continue. So we have to stay flexible and we have to see what's happening and move with it.
0: And be, and be your own best advocate. I I think like what I'm hearing from you distinguishes you, frankly, from a lot of the writers that I speak with in terms of, um, it sounds like how, how carefully, or at least to some degree, how carefully you pay attention to what's going on in the on the business side of publishing. Um, it's
1: how I live. Right. I don't have another job. Right. So it it would be remiss of me to not pay attention. Right. If I want to if I would like to continue being a working writer, which I would. This is my you know, this is the thing I love to do more than anything. I would do it even if I weren't paid. Right. Um, If I could. But I choose to make this the thing that I do. So I have to.
0: Yeah, I know. I mean, like the thing about it is that, like, everything you just said is like, uh, like a no-brainer. Like, yeah, of course. And really, all of us, if we are trying to publish and be a part of this business, and you know, at least theoretically, make a good living from it, uh, how? Why would you not? I I just think sometimes writers are, you know, they self-identify as artists, and that's well and good. But I just think a lot of, a lot of them either don't have the either the ability or the inclination to, or like, they don't think it's their, it's who they are to like engage in the business side. Do you know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. Those days are over. I'm sorry to say like, if those people want to teach, then those days aren't over maybe. And, and you can do that. But I, it's interesting to me because I, I am talking to a lot of people and, and you know, the days when you could just write you know, get a, a really nice advance and write a book that's sort of mid, a mid list book and not do any marketing, not do any, um, social media, for example, not do any engagement with your readers. Uh, publishers are just dropping those people. Um, those people are not getting contracts. So like the, basically the world is changing. <laughs> yeah. It has been changing for a long time, but I think people of a certain mindset are realizing that the hard way.
0: I mean, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking about myself. Like, I published a novel; it didn't really sell. I mean, it did; it sold some, but it didn't sell a great number of copies. Like, am I just fucked in the publishing world? They'll just look at those book scan numbers and be like, eh.
1: Well, that's what happened with the Fortress, right? So, the, I went from having, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies sold of of books to I think the Fortress sold like under five thousand copies. Wow. Yeah, because it's, it is what it is. It's a literary memoir. I think it's personally, I think it's my best book, but, um, there you go. Uh, it's literary memoir and I made a decision to do, choose. you know, publish with a, uh, with HarperCollins, which is a, you know, commercial. They're, you know, they want to see a profit and they want to see numbers. And so basically, I mean, if we get right down to the nitty gritty now is about me having to reprove that I can sell books. Wow. Because I did. It's just once. Right. It's only it only takes one (laughs) to sort of derail your your career. Um, And I'm very confident that. Well, I was very confident that the ancestor was going to do well um, before this. You know, all the bookstores closed, and I'm not touring. But and um, let, let me
0: just let me just interject here: we are recording this in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic.
1: Right. So you know, everything was looking pretty good. I had everything lined up, and it was all looking really good. And so I don't know. But then again, I don't know what's going to happen with publishing. You know, right now people are, if you're reading anything, you know, if you follow booksellers and if you are reading anything about what's happening with independent bookstores, people are speculating that many of them might not open again. Um, so a process that was maybe going to happen over the course of 15 years where people are buying so many books online could happen quickly. It's its terrifying.
0: My God. I hope it's not true. You know? I hope
1: so too. I mean, really.
0: I have my little neighborhood bookstore. You want to know something though? Um the little indie bookstore in my neighborhood or nearby my neighborhood. Um I want to say I heard a rumor that there are like a couple of rich dudes in LA who subsidize it.
1: Awesome. Well, uh, everyone is going to everyone needs that. I was put up
0: like, like it is awesome, but it's also sad. It's like, "Oh my god, like that's how cuz I always wonder. I'm like, how do they survive? Uh, yeah. You know, I, like it's doing I know, a, it's,
1: patronage.
0: It's because there's yeah, there's two people who are like, you know what, we're rich enough that we can do this and we want to have a bookstore in this area.
1: <laughs> I just wish, well, I mean, of course we can all, all wish that everyone would go to bookstores and buy physical books, but um I don't know, people are listening to podcasts and people are watching series on t- on television and people are listening to audiobooks and you know, the iPhone really just totally exploded our culture in a way that I, you know, right. Many writers don't want us to grapple with that reality, but, (laughs) you know, really and and the same with directors and, and film people, people, you know, kids or, you know, people in their teens, kids in their teens have never been to a movie theater. They watch everything on their phone.
0: I think it's, or, fu- I think it's fucked up. I think it's it's bad. totally
1: fucked up. It's bad. I agree. I mean, I have, I, I am a hundred percent with you, but it's also reality. That's right. So, um, what do you do in that situation? Um, how do you, how do you, the, the words, culture? fetal the, word, the
0: words, fetal position just flashing <laughs> in my mind.
1: I know I've been there. Believe me on the floor, fetal position, like actually this week with all the bookstores not being open for my tour. And you know, the, I did extensive um, outreach with librarians. I went to the ALA Library Convention and met like a thousand li- librarians, you know, who are, ordered my book. But now all of the the libraries are closed, so those books can't ship there.
0: Oh, my <sighs> goodness gracious! So, like, if
1: you just think of like the deep, the deepness of this moment, right? Like the deep economic um, fissures that are happening. It's, it, you know, and I feel lucky. People can still buy my book as a digital book or audio, but like my friends who own restaurants or, you know, people who I know who work in industries like that, that you know, that they're closed there. You know, there's not any way no one can like sure. There can be takeout, but people aren't doing that.
0: Okay. So let me just, let me just posit something just even if it's only to try to comfort myself, <laughs> <laughs> like maybe in the midst of all this, like this is part of my like silver lining kind of like thinking that happens like episodically. Like I kind of alternate between feeling really dark and then sometimes being like, well, wait a minute. Maybe this is like, you know, causing people to, it's like an enforced interiority. Do you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. not not only like physical interiority, but also like in some ways, psychological And people are not able to distract themselves in the typical manner by getting on the subway and busying yourself to work and being at the office all day and sitting in front of your computer and jabbering in meetings with people. And, you know, maybe by pressing pause like this this in this very kind of strange and unprecedented way, maybe that might somehow create a more literary mindset?
1: <laughs> that would be great. I mean, it, actually, you know, what would be amazing is if it created um, a sense of quiet in people's heads. Because I think what's happened is that we've all become, you know, it's very difficult for all of us to have the, the space and the quiet to read mm-hmm. consistently and, and for long periods of time. And to be a novelist, especially like the way that I am, where I write 400 page novels, at least, um, you need sustained concentration over long periods of time. And most of the rest of our culture has lost that ability. So yeah, if that if this allows us to do it, but I honestly, you know, thank you, Steve Jobs, like really developing um, a little device that you can bring with you everywhere and distract yourself endlessly and make your attention span 30 seconds or less is it, it's the enemy of sustained concentration that you need for reading
0: that's right i i, I couldn't agree more i'm i i, I want to get rid of my smartphone and go to like a you know a dumb phone or whatever they're called or a flip phone but just like i worry about like the the photos because I have kids and then Mm -hmm. GPS. Like, do I need GPS? But I guess I could just...
1: (laughs) Get a map. Get a map. (laughs) You could get a map. (laughs) I don't know. I think that the monks who were illuminating manuscripts said the same thing about Gutenberg. I don't know. I mean, I think we're in a seismic paradigm shift that maybe we don't even realize. We're lucky that... In some ways, we're lucky you and I because we're exactly the age where we experienced both.
0: I I talk about my the feeling I have of uh, good fortune for having an analog childhood.
1: Yeah, no, really. My, my children don't have that there. And, um, I don't know. It it scares me in some ways to see what's going to happen when the human brain is not wired for the kind of concentration I'm talking about, where decision-making happens without reflection and without long, pauses to think it through and without a sort of bank of, you know, peaceful <laughs> moments. I don't know. I just, I feel like we're losing a lot by taking that away.
0: Yeah. And that's, you know, it's interesting. Like I've kind of been, I don't know if smug is the right word, <laughs> um, but part of this whole shelter in place period of of history that we're living through as you and I talk has made me think about like one, like my natural, like kind of introverted quality. Like I'm not, I'm not as introverted as some, like I can be, I don't know, I kind of somewhere near the middle, but more introverted than extroverted. But I also work from home. I'm lucky in that way. And uh, I spend a lot of time alone and I, you know, just as like a lot of writers do, it's, it's like a mode in which I'm comfortable and it's a mode with which I have a lot of experience. And so tell me if you have felt this, but like when you look out at maybe friends or just people in general that you, you know, see online or in your Twitter feed or whatever, do you notice like, wow, like people are having to slow down and get inward. And like, this is sort of how I always am. (laughs) Yeah,
1: no, it's painful for people. It's really painful for people, but you could put me in a bomb shelter for a couple of months and I would be just fine. Like I really, I, I love solitude and I would just you know, go away and write a novel. And that's sort of been the way that I've been thinking through this, like, oh, this is perfect time for me to go write a a novel, except for, you know, it's, you know, the world is very disruptive right now. But um, the kind of shaving away of of all of the distractions and, and the extras that a lot of people have in life, writers don't have those things. You know, I hear people freaking out and just, you know, it's justified. People should freak out. Their lives are being turned upside down. But, you know, people who getting laid off without health insurance and people having no job security and people having no, you know, some, I have a friend whose husband was fired and it's like, we don't have any job security. I'm like, well, every book for me is a new, is a new moment like that. Right. Right, right. I have no guarantee that I'm going to ever sell another book. And so if you think about it that way, you know the years of work that go into writing a book before it goes out. You know, if I don't have a contract, for example, if it's rejected, I'm out of a job. And not only that, I've been out of a job for two years. You know, while I was writing that book, and so um, and I often don't have health insurance. You know, I think that that's just the nature of being a writer. You're very, you know, we're really, um, we 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 rush into risky situations for our art and. We've learned over time to have a thick skin about it and and to be like, yeah, whatever like the kind of like a shrug.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean you do <laughs> you, know, like you, a- you have to be kind of uh reckless isn't the right word, but willing to risk. Uh there's no other there's no other way around it, like to, to do this. And I, I sometimes like maybe I'm being too precious or dramatic about it, but if you're really wired for this and and believe me, I've tried, like maybe more than most, like I've tried everything to like not do this. <laughs> like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm like, oh, I'll yeah. do this. I'll start a literary magazine. I'll write for TV. I'll do You know, <laughs> I've tried all these different hustles and I keep coming back to the keyboard and it's like, okay. Yeah. So I feel like part of it is like, yeah, you got to be willing to, to roll the dice to keep that metaphor going. Um, Or it's like, you know what? Some people like this is just the way we're wired to cope with being alive and how we're I don't know like is that too precious I mean it's
1: no I think it's true and I, I mean the question is whether we're wired that way or if we've wired ourselves to be that way I don't know it's a choice but um I've never been able to do anything else like I've always just written um I taught in Japan for three years but while I was there I was sneaking off to their library and 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 writing and learning how to write so this is just what I do and I think but I, I honestly like to believe, and maybe this is my fairy tale and my fantasy, is that if I had decided, for example, to be a stockbroker and a hedge fund manager, I would be rich right now. Like I think that what I do, you know, what I do and put my whole self into, I can be good at. Um, it's just I've chosen this thing, which has now become, you know, recently in the last I would say eight years, really more and more difficult <laughs> mm. for everyone, not just me.
0: Yeah. Well, but I mean, and then um, I think like this is maybe another moment to sort of highlight the the other stuff that you're doing, like the creative stuff. I relate to this, you know, like trying the... Um, the audio theater, like, what do you call it? The uh... audio
1: drama. Yeah, it's the... a podcast, yeah. you know, but it, you know, it's to distinguish it just from nonfiction podcasts, they call it audio drama.
0: Right. But I mean, trying that and then writing a pilot and, and is the pilot for like an adaptation of your book of Angelology? So or...
1: I have so much going on with, with TV actually. Um, I have recently, yeah, um, we're in negotiations, um, to do a television series of Angelology where I would write the pilot. Um, and then I'm working with a showrunner to develop, um, so Crypto Z is an audio drama, but we're hoping to make it into a series too.
0: And who's representing you on the TV side? Like, do you have? Um, Paradigm. Okay. Like, is that a management company or is that an agency? It's,
1: no, that's an agent. That's an agency. Okay.
0: Okay. So you have them. Um, and but the...
1: again, like a small, like a small boutique, you know, they're a smaller agency. Right. right. Um
0: but it doesn't matter. They know the people,
1: you know, right. They know the people. And I think I've just learned over time that smaller and dedicated to you is better than big. And they don't remember who you
0: are. (laughs) What was your name again?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've seriously, I had a conversation. I'm not even going to get too specific where it was with someone who just didn't really did not know what I was doing like, would ask me to tell her what I was doing every time she got on the phone with me. And so, like, that's just not... Like, I'm I'm risking my livelihood in my life to do this. <laughs> you know, I want someone who's dedicated.
0: Yeah, is that, so, yeah, that's, yeah no, that shouldn't I'm, be too much to ask.
1: It's not too much to ask. And, I've you know, I'm working with, with people at Paradigm, and that's been great. But anyway, so there, there's a lot of things, you know, that I'm doing outside the box right now. And, and television, I think, because so many people like the, the golden sort of age of storytelling is happening in television. There's a huge amount of people that are flocking to, to it, but also at the same time, there's a lot more um, opportunity.
0: No doubt. And I guess like when I think about it, um, it seems smart to me to be, you're sort of conduct, like you're writing your novels and that's sort of your main hustle, but then you're conducting all these little experiments on the side and you're paying careful attention to uh, publishing and the marketplace. And it sounds like what you sense is there being like a major disruptive and possibly destructive shift (laughs) happening in in publishing. And like you're trying to work with that as opposed to ignoring it or wishing it would go away.
1: Right. And I think... I mean, I've been feeling it for the past four or five years, and have been slowly trying to find ways to um, move past over it or to work with it, I guess. But I think that this, uh, where our economy is right now, and what's going on right now, might hasten, <laughs> hasten, you know, a lot, you know, the. I don't know I don't even know what I don't want to say the demise of it it's not going to go away but the the problems that were already there I think might become more evident you know for example I was on a podcast a while ago a woman um, named Joanna Penn I don't know if you know who she is she has um, a podcast about writing and the business of writing and she's entirely self-published she writes um I I haven't had a chance to read her books yet, but she does write sort of, you know, big mystery, supernatural novels. She's self-published her whole career. I think she's written 20 books um, and she's been self-published in 40 countries. She makes a very good living um, doing that. Uh, She has uh, this podcast that people all over the world listen to. After my episode was aired, I had people from everywhere contacting me. I mean, she, this is someone I'm really, I have a lot of admiration for her because she just sort of said, screw it. I'm going to go out and do this myself. And it's a huge undertaking. I mean, I admit that I get scared thinking about that kind of huge amount of work it it would take to self-publish. But
0: I mean, does, do her books have like a nice design and they're copy edited and like there's, um,
1: yeah. so you can hire everyone to do that now, you know, they're, you can have everyone do that for you and it looks, they look indistinguishable from a book, say, for example, from random house.
0: And is it, I mean, I guess like I, 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 should, I should maybe be more up on this than I am, but like when you say you can find people to do that for you, do you mean like under one tent? Or well, under... so, um,
1: no, I don't think it's under one tent, but there are, you know, it's so easy now to just, even if you just Google, um, you know, editors right. or get recommendations, um, copy editing, it's there and it's it's not expensive. And, right. um, you know, and they're often, ve- because of the volatility in the publishing industry, they're often like industry veterans who are now on the side editing um, and helping writers with this. So, you know, it's not just writers going off on their own. It's also... Um, you know, editors and people in the industry for a long time, book cover designers, all of these people are now catering in some ways to self-publishing. And I think the stigma that we, you know, all of us who came up in the era of, you know, sort of the big, uh, I don't know, literary, the the, the halo around literary writers and and published writers, it was that self-published writers, there was a huge stigma that they weren't actually good, right? That they were just... Outcasts and, and publishing pulp And I don't know I mean I am i don't know I, I can't weigh in on either side because I don't read a lot of self-published Authors at this point but From what I'm seeing and from what I'm hearing um, There are a lot of them Who are are doing well I mean romance writers for example this is totally separate But the rom- the, the sort of professional Publishing romance Genre has Had trouble because romance writers Are self-publishing and they're making seven figures A year
0: I've thought about writing a romance novel.
1: <laughs> do you have a romantic side to you, Brad? It's so romantic. You're not telling anyone. Oh, my about.
0: God. You have no idea. <laughs> uh, but no, like, I, like, honestly, like, just as, like, a mental exercise, I was like, I wonder if I could do it. Like, could I tell, like, a traditional, like, romance? Um, because the thing is, is that people love that stuff. They, they love it. They love to read about people falling in love and having sex. That's what that's it And sells. I can
1: just tell you that right now, the, all those... People, mostly women who are buying those books, are at home downloading them. They don't care that the bookstores are closed. They are downloading them, you know, times 20. And the people who are self publishing are making a killing, while me, (laughs) you know, who's dependent completely on whether my books get shipped out from a warehouse somewhere um is freaking out, you know, in fetal position on the floor, worrying about my book tour being cancelled. So maybe I think um, what we I think
0: what we're dawning on here is like what we should do is we should create like a little romance novel factory. <laughs> we'll create I think,
1: you're, I think you're probably more romantic than me.
0: <laughs> no, we'll uh we'll create one pseudonym and we'll just have like multiple writers. So, you know, we oh, can that all sounds good. Yeah, no, we could do that. We'd make so much money. And then just split the profits.
1: Sounds good. Well, you know, well, ha- I'll have we'll have to get someone else to come up with the ideas because I think it's just not in me. You know, I I am very experimental and I try lots of things, but romance writing is not anything I thought I would be good at. No, what
0: about you? Do a podcast too, though, right?
1: So I have done a podcast, and I it went on hold because um my you know we had some problems with uh various problems that couldn't continue, but, and it and it hopefully will come back again. But what it was, was it, really me. What was it just, called? called writerly. Um, and it was really just about this, all the stuff we're talking about now, like the business of writing and the, the, the realistic side of being a writer and what writers do. And we had people on, you know, the way that you do, but it was really more me and I was doing it with Walter Kern for a couple of years. And then, um, something happened that we couldn't continue. And so it went on pause. And then I had, another writer come on and same thing happened. So I think, I don't know, maybe I'll, I'll start it again, but just with me.
0: Yeah. Well, it's hard, you know, like trying to coordinate schedules and do all the, like uh, get getting It's hard. Getting it done this way is hard enough. If I had another person co-hosting Oh my with God.
1: Me. Yeah. It's hard. And also, you know, I had an editor who was really good and he couldn't do it anymore. And so I was going to have to hire someone and it just got to be um, a lot, but I do I do love doing my podcast and I'm going to come back to it at some point. And, and you know, people are not happy that it's gone, but it will come back.
0: Well, yeah, no, you're great to talk to. Um, and the ancestor is out there now, right? Do you want to give it one, last, yeah. give it another yes. plug here before we say goodbye.
1: Right. So, um, it's called the ancestor and it's a literary suspense horror novel, I guess. And if you want a free sample, actually you can write to me, um, at my email address, it's Danielle at Daniel Trisoni.com, And I will send you a free sample.
0: Wow. Um,
1: yeah, I have this cute little, um, PDF that I'll send out. And so, and also if you just want to get in touch about any of the things that we talked about, write to me and I would love to, to chat with you.
0: And if you are extra special and nice, Danielle might share some of her uh, incredible, um, stock of flour her 75 pounds of flour that she has in her pantry
1: (laughs) i will mail out little boxes of flour (laughs) so you
0: can make you can make Um, dough and survive the apocalypse um well actually you
1: know what people need more than dough Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, go. please finish. I want to hear this.
1: I was just going to say, you know, what's more people are actually, um, what's more at a premium is yeast. The flour is there. It's the yeast that's missing.
0: Okay. Well, maybe, okay. Now I'm, I'm hatching another plan for a business. <laughs> <laughs> Romance novels and yeast. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let's not go there.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, listen, it's great to talk to you again after all these years the last time we talked was so long ago but i, I was... know
1: it's been so fun i'm really glad that we we're able to connect again
0: yeah and i've certainly been um you know following along as your career has uh taken off and grown and for what it's worth um just hearing you talk and you know seeing what you've done in the past and seeing what you've done with the ancestor um i feel like good things are in store for you so take that oh, for, thank you take that for what it's worth i wish you well and i thank you for taking the time to talk
1: my pleasure thanks brad
0: right there you go guys that's danielle trussoni her new novel is called the ancestor and it is out there now from william morrow if you want to find danielle on the internet her website is danielle you can follow her on twitter at danny trussoni. the novel again is called the ancestor it's a new york times bestseller go get your copy If you like this program and you want to support it, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod, patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you would like to write to me, if you have some feedback, the email address is letters at other PPL.com. Let me hear from you. This program has its own official app. The other people with Brad Listy app. It's free. Go get the app. This entire show, uh, the entire uh, archive of this show is free, just so you know. All 642 uh, episodes available free of charge. It's my offering to the world. So, let me see here. What do we got coming up? I believe... Coming up on the program, uh, Mary South is my next guest. Mary South, author uh, of a book called You Will Never Be Forgotten. Great time talking with Mary South. Stay tuned for that. And look, you know, I don't mean to be a dick about Grimes and Elon Musk. I'm really genuinely happy for them it's a beautiful child I don't want to talk shit about a baby it's more a commentary on celebrity baby naming I think we all have a stake in this somehow just give me something I can pronounce or, or like that I can say without like breaking into sort of like fit of giggles just help me out AE twelve four seven X